Welcome everybody to the uh, long-awaited and overdue PicPod 69. Um, today we have a special guest. We've got David Inwald. He's a consultant intensivist in um, Cambridge, UK, and uh, he's, the, he's the chief investigator for the UK-wide pressure study, which is looking into different pressure targets for intensive care children. Um, welcome, David. Could you introduce yourself, please, and tell us whether that was all correct? Yes, thank you very much, Patrick, and thank you for the invitation to come on to PickPod. Uh, yeah, I'm David Inwald. I'm a consultant paediatric intensivist at Brooks in Cambridge. And as you say, I'm the chief investigator of the pressure study, which is currently in progress in 18 PLSUs across the UK, looking at blood pressure targets in critically ill children requiring vasoactive support for hypotension. So this, David, is a huge study, isn't it? You know, the usual usual N in studies is around three to 400, which is a nice manageable amount, um, which is affordable and it takes a not over long amount of time. You've gone for a frankly jaw-dropping 1900 cases. That's very impressive. Um, yes, it's a lot of cases. Uh, I mean, with all these things, you know, it's not that we um, as trialists decide on the number of cases um, it's all decided by the statisticians on the basis of the power calculation um, and the power calculation in, in, in for pressure, looking at the outcome measure we're using, um, came up with that figure. So, yes, it is a big study and it's a huge ask from the PIC community to randomise that many kids into the study. And we, we know that. Um, so uh, thank you very much to everybody for supporting it. Um, but yes, it is a big number agreed. David, uh... For people who are relatively new to this clinical trial, could you give us a bit of the background? Because one of the things that has always perplexed me is that as clinicians, we've looked at permissive hypercapnia, permissive even hypoxia, etc. This was something that I always felt was a trial that needed to be done. And it's obviously taken a long time to put it into. So can you give us a bit of your background in terms of how the trial was set up? Absolutely. I mean, I think, well, I mean, I think that the, the, as you say, there's a lot of what I would call less is more studies coming out, both in adult and pediatric ICU, where people are beginning to wonder if um, achieving less than physiological targets may be better for patients. And, you know, we know that the OxyPICU study, um, Chief Investigator Mark Peters has just completed recruitment. And I think actually Mark's uh, in uh, Ireland this week and about to uh, reveal the results um, in critical care reviews. Um, which is great news. So that's completed and and results will be out shortly. Um, and obviously in adult ICU, there's a number of studies as well. And I suppose in terms of blood pressure, the, there's been a few studies. The main study in adults uh, regarding uh, blood pressure targets is the 65 trial, which looked, in, uh, looked at uh, older adults uh, requiring vasoactive support in intensive care, um, targeting a fifth centile map um, rather than... Uh, what may maybe you know might be a considered to be a previously usual care target if you like which might have been a bit higher than that than 60 to 65 millimeters of mercury um and um certainly showed no disbenefit of a lower target uh and possibly if some few some uh, less complications of vasoactive drugs um and i think in pediatrics really we're obviously uh hampered with with a smaller population that we deal with um, and, you know, the, the, there aren't really any clinical trials 
out there looking at different MAP targets in children in intensive care. And of course, we know that we all need a reasonable MAP to drive flow. Um, uh, we all remember that from our uh, first year physiology. But at the same time, we it's not clear what MAP we should aim for and the interventions that we have to give our patients to achieve um, uh, any specific MAP, mean arterial pressure, in the patients who's requiring vasoactives, um, you know, include vasoactive drugs, um, which have complications um, and also often require central lines to be inserted. And central lines obviously have complications in children as well, including thrombosis and infection, and of course, fluids. And we know that fluid overload is uh, probably not a good thing for our patients. Um, so there's a risk benefit analysis there somewhere, uh, risks of treatment um, versus benefits of therapy. And we don't really know where we stand there. And I suppose, um, you know, uh, most of the previous guidelines that were around um, a few years ago, uh, both from, well, from any source really would in general say aim for a 50th centile map for, for age as your suggested target for, for blood pressure. But I suppose that with the adult data emerging and um, other studies in looking at other physiological targets, which demonstrated either no disbenefit of um, uh, less than physiological targets or some benefit, we wondered if a fifth centile map for age might be an interesting thing to look at. The surviving sepsis guideline hemodynamic group, which also chaired, identified this as a particular possible area for clinical trials, uh, looking to see whether there was a any potential benefit from aiming at a, a lower than 50th centile map target and highlighting the lack of current evidence. So on the back of that, and also some uh, observational data from various paediatric intensive care units in London, looking at what the observed and uh, maps were and serving intensivists around the country and saying, what is your current practice? Um, we thought this would be a feasible study to do. Um, and we put the study together. And essentially what we're looking at is um, targeting a fifth centile map for age as our intervention compared to usual care, looking at ventilated children uh, requiring vasoactive support for hypotension uh, with some exclusions. Um, and the outcome measure is basically a composite of uh, mortality and uh, length of ventilator support. And we were uh, lucky enough to have ICNOC as a clinical trials unit, um, some fantastic co-investigators. Um, we put the protocol together um, we put the proposal together and it was funded by the NEHR and we started uh, recruiting back in, I think it was November 21. So the controller would have normally used the, the local protocols for standard management, would they? Yes, I think so. The idea really was it, it we weren't trying to, we didn't, what we didn't want to do is say to people in the control arm, aim for a higher pressure than you would normally aim for. Um, so the idea was to use the comparator as usual care with the assumption that usual care would be something a little bit higher than fifth centile map for age. Uh, and that was on the basis of survey data. We did a survey um, of PCCSG uh, members uh, before the trial started. Um, and, and that seemed to be about where people were aiming at. Um, some people aiming a bit lower, some people aiming a bit higher. Um, but there appeared to be uh, that that seemed to be usual care, so that's the, so that's 
and the idea is we're trying to you know this is an intervention and we're comparing it to um, what people would do normally so david before i ask my next question you know your parallels with oxypicu study um, are very valid. Um, we, we interviewed Mark Peters on PickPod 56 about Oxypicu, which is fascinating. And we also on PickPod 68, we talked all about fluids and about about fluid balance and so on and what it all means. I think the major difference between pressure and Oxypicu and also between pressure and the adult studies is that the centiles, the normals are much more set in oxygen saturations. Yeah. So we know that oxygen saturations are set, you know, 95-ish plus or minus a bit. That's our normal walking around saturations in a healthy child. I have the uh the famous renal blood pressure chart in front of me um at the moment, which as we know, irritatingly, they go from the 50th to the 99th centile, which is which has always been a, a source of annoyance to me because uh renal um, teams only look at hypertension and they don't look at hypotension. But what is always striking is the incredible range of um, normalities. So between the, you know, for the 50th centile height in boys age one, the 50th centile blood pressure is 85 asystolic and the 95th is 103. So there's, you know, there's a gap of 18 there from 50th to 95th. Now, if you reflect that down to the to the fifth centile, you then have a 36 millimeters of mercury gap of normality. And my other question is, you know, once we solve that, that these normals are in healthy, well relaxed school kids. But this is why we need a trial, isn't it? But 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 how this translates into sick, septic children is it's really difficult to to imagine, isn't it? Do they need more or less pressure? And also their systemic vascular resistance will be different. So the flows may be different to different. So there's all kinds of variables which are really hard to account for, which is probably yes. why you need your 1900 patients, isn't it? I think there it's a very, I mean, I think you've identified a big problem with the setup of the trial, which is we needed to, I mean, let's take one thing at a time. First of all, what is the fifth centile map for age? Um, and as you can imagine, that generated a lot of discussion in the clinical within the clinical kind of investigators group. You know, what numbers do we use? And I mean, I think the problem is, is that there are many data sets, and the data set that's most usually quoted is the um, uh, what's called the task force data, which is the um, US NIH data um, looking, which was basically collected in office by office pediatricians through auscultation to really diagnose hypertension, as you say. Um, and the data that data has been used. Um, there's a paper by Hack and Zeritsky that's quite old now that was in Pediatric Critical Care Medicine in 2008, where they used the task force data to essentially generate fifth and 50th um, centiles for age and gender and I think height. Um, based on the task force data, basically using the sort of mathematical, you know, look, using the idea that the, the means and standard deviations and so on would be the same on a downward axis as it would be on the upward axis. So that data set is the most oft quoted one. Um, uh, the, the US 
the NIH task force data and the Hakan Zaritsky derivation of fifth and 50th centile map for age based on it. Now, um, you know, you can criticize that data set as you just have by saying, well, this is uh, healthy children in uh, US pediatricians offices. And what does this represent? Um, now, if you look at then, you can then look at hospital data if you want to. And there's various hospital data sets. And believe me, we looked at all of them. I'm sure. um, uh, unfortunately, many of them, you know, you can you can come out with criticisms of any of these kind of data sets, you know, so then with regard to hospital ones, you know, are the children stressed? Uh, were they measured in the ED or on the ward? Um, were they measured invasively or non-invasively? Um, because there may be some differences there. You know, what was the methodology of measurement? Um, if the children were in ICU, so there's one data set or there's one uh, range of centiles that's recently been produced by the European Resuscitation Council. And that's based on invasively collected blood pressures in a intensive care unit in Canada, in a children's intensive care in Canada, which has cardiac cases. Um, so, of course, you know, all those children are likely supported with vasoactives if their blood pressure is too low. So what does a, what does a fifth centile map for age mean in that population? But, you know, so I think there's also an angle also that's, you know, like in weight charts, showing where you are on the centile, it doesn't actually equate to where you should be. It just tells you where you are within the population. It doesn't tell you what the healthiest weight is. Right. You know, the 50th centile in a massively obese culture is not healthy. It's, it's still the 50th centile. Um, yes. I mean, so... most of these, most of these um, centile charts look at height um, rather than weight. Um, but I mean, I think that, um, yes, I mean, it's difficult. And at the end of the day, we had to essentially, um, you know, do something that was pragmatic um, and that made sense um, and that there was going to be equipoise amongst clinicians for. Um, now, the European Resuscitation Council uh, centiles, which came out just before the study started, caused some controversy. Um, and even though we were concerned about the data on which they were based, as I just mentioned, I think it was hard to completely ignore them. Um, so we actually revised the targets for very young children slightly upwards so that our target bands, as you've seen, didn't fall below the ERC um, fifth centile map for age. Um, because I think if it had fallen below that, then that may have caused some problems with equipoise for some clinicians. And at the same time, with the with the older children, um, we sort of aimed. We we used the Hakan Zaritsky targets, uh, Hakan Zaritsky uh, data from the task force data um, to guide us. So we came out with a kind of composite of the ERC uh, fifth centile map for age um, and the Hakan Zaritsky data, and aimed to have a band so that we could ask our nursing staff. Uh, hard-working PICU nursing staff who have lots to think about already to try and target their map, their, their therapy to get the map within that target band for age. And we thought very hard about whether we should include height. Um, uh, and we decided in the end not to because we thought that um, height was something that was not routinely measured in most pediatric intensive care units um, and may not be measured accurately in any case. Um, so we, in the end, we just said fifth, fifth centile map for a, for age, um, and and using fiftieth centile height as our as 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 the, the parameter that we kind of uh, um, used um, for the height part of the calculation.
so that's kind of how they were they were made um uh there was a lot of discussion um there was as i say the targets were were revised upwards slightly before the trial starts because of the erc recommendations but as you can imagine you know it's it's there are no gold standard um uh um map centiles which you can look at and say this is representative of our population um it's it's difficult because of course the population we deal with is treated um and you know we often have invasive arterial lines in and that's how we're measuring the pressure so not quite the same as the healthy child population but in the end at the end of the day the healthy child is the healthy adult or the healthy child is in general how map map centiles or systolic blood pressure centiles are derived uh, and that's kind of what we went with along with some adjustment for the erc fifth centile map to make sure we didn't drop below that david tell me was there any resistance uh when you were writing the trial design you know coming down from the, the normal sort of the norm was 50th centile and coming down to fifth centile were there individuals who were a bit sort of concerned about the whole thing well, some individuals were, um, and some individuals probably still are. I mean, I think you know, PICU clinicians are very uh, have got very um, uh, often have strong opinions on things. So you know, there's always going to be people that don't have equipoise. Um, but I suppose you know, we we did the survey, um, and we you know took soundings uh, via the survey about what would be acceptable. And looking at the adult data, it seemed that. Um, a fifth centile map for age was a reasonable uh, thing to go for as an intervention. Um, as I say, the main issue, I think the main the main problem for us um, was that these ERC uh, centiles came out just at the time the trial was meant to be kicking off, uh, and then we had to uh, we had to stop the study for a period of a few months and consider as a group the best way to deal with that. Um, and as I say, what we did is we had to adjust the centiles for the very young babies up a little bit on the back of that data um, to maintain uh, what we hope would be equipoise amongst the clinical community uh, and then and then restart uh, recruitment uh, um, slightly beyond where you know a few months after the the, the, the desired start date um, David there's no there's no guidance on the type of inotrope stroke vasopressor to use. They have hugely different effects and different balances between constriction, dilation, and anotropy, lucitropy, um, and and how it how they affect the flows in the body. Are you going to do a sub subgroup analysis on which inotropes were used? We're not planning on doing a subgroup analysis on which inotropes were used. Um, I mean we. There is lots of interesting data, as you can imagine, about what sort of inotropes people do use in general. Um, I think it would be, you know, obviously it's not powered to to do to do that sort of analysis. Um, yeah, you know, you're right. I mean, these are all interesting questions, but at the end of the day, we had to do something that was going to be pragmatic, that was clear for people, you know, a clear intervention that people understood that the nursing staff um, at the end of the bed managing the patients would understand um, and, you know, that could be adequately powered to, to you know, evaluate the outcome. Um, and I think that um, though it might be interesting to look at many different things, as you say, I think the reality is it would be quite difficult to do a 
big randomized clinical trial looking at, you know, some of the things, you know, this inotrope versus that inotrope um, in, in, in pediatric ICU. I mean, I think it's, uh, this is a difficult study to recruit to because, um, uh, you know, it's not like you can, not every patient is on uh, vasoactive drugs. Um, it's slower to recruit than oxypicu because obviously oxygen is an intervention that's used much more widely than vasoactives. Um, and, you know, there are exclusion criteria. So I think uh, you have to be, um, you know, when you do these kind of studies, you have to be pragmatic about what you're, what you can do, what you can achieve and, um, your, the, the population that is realistic to recruit. Can I move on to consenting? Because I think like any intensive care trial, consenting is always a problem. Uh, how have you tried to approach that? So, I mean, we're, we're using the model that's been used in a number of pediatric ICU studies in the UK now and all pediatric emergency care studies, which is um, randomization without prior consent um, or what used to be called deferred consent. Um, and the idea is, is that the uh, clinical team um, can be empowered to uh, screen and randomize patients into the study, and that should be an easy process. Um, it's designed to be easy. Um, it does need a little bit of training, obviously. Um, and then the consent, the formal consent is done later on by the research staff, hopefully within a day or two. Um, uh, and the research staff, you know, hopefully will give the the, the, the parents, um, and it usually will be the parents, the 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 information sheet to read through. And we know from, uh, we use the same model in the FISH study, which I was also chief investigator for, um, and Kerry Wolfall, who is a fantastic uh, psychologist from Liverpool, did a lot of work with parent groups um, looking at that. Um, and we found that it was acceptable. I think the people that tend to worry about the research, the, the research of that prior consent model uh, are clinicians by and large, whereas actually what we found was that the parents supported it and understood the reasons for it. Uh, and the idea is you try not to burden people with too much information at the point where their child's, you know, suddenly become critically unwell um, and, um, you know, they just don't have the kind of bandwidth to digest a four page uh, information sheet. Do you think, David, I don't I don't think that that medicine is ready for this yet, but do you think in the future we can move away from blood pressure at all? Um so blood pressure is a pretty blunt tool and it is it is a proxy. We use it as a proxy for cardiac output essentially. Um but it doesn't it doesn't give you any indication of how much flow there is because the systemic vascular resistance is in play as well. So um high blood pressure versus high um high high resistance is still a low flow state. Um and you can see often, so for instance, in the cardiomyopathic patients who come in with this staggers me every time their blood pressures can be completely normal, and yet they're in a deeply low flow state. Um, do you think in the future there's scope for a study which uses really individualized care uh, and we are aiming not at blood pressure, which is a very pragmatic, as you said, targets, but something like a cardiac index, cardiac cardiac outputs, that kind of more individualized metric? Yeah, no, interesting question. I mean, I suppose the thing about blood pressure is that, as you say, even though it may be um, a slightly blunt 
uh, way of assessing the circulation. It is something that as intensivists, we tend to tell our, you know, junior staff and our nursing staff to aim at, a, to aim at this pressure when a patient's on vasoactive drugs. So I think that's a fairly standard conversation that happens on ward rounds. And that, I suppose that's one of the reasons why it's um, perhaps uh, easier to use as a uh, variable to study than some of the other things you mentioned. Um, I mean, yeah, I suppose it is possible there may be large randomized control trials looking at some other uh, more flow-based metrics. Um, but I think that the the problem is in high-income settings uh, like we're in, there just isn't that much community-acquired sepsis around anymore. Um, we know we live in a post-vaccination era where, uh, you know, it's, it's not like it was in the early 1990s with the meningococcal um uh, um, epidemic, uh, as it was then, um, and um, I think it would be very difficult to power a study for one of these other metrics, as you say. I mean, and the other thing is, is that many of them are kind of many of them require quite techy bits of kit, um, and uh, you know, there's there can be significant problems in getting reliable data and inter-observer. Uh, reliability and so on. So I think it's, you know, yes, it would be lovely to think that there might be a large randomized control trial around the corner in pediatrics, looking at some easily, um, uh, some easily easily measured variable that tells us about flow. But I think it's unlikely uh, uh, in a high income setting for sure, and obviously in a low income setting, um, then you know there'll be problems with kit and um uh, access and so on so I, unlikely i think is the reality though i know that some people like using those kind of variables to titrate treatment too but again we're in the same issue there that we are with blood pressure that we don't really have um specific targets that we can aim at that we know are going to from trials are going to affect outcome um and then you just end up aiming for a normal number um, and not knowing whether that's the right thing to do or not. You're now 18 months down the road? Uh, we are now around that, yes. So how many patients have you recruited so far? We have recruited, I can't tell you the exact number today, uh, but it's over 600 at the beginning of the month. So you've done pretty good, you guys. That's, that's more than I had anticipated, really. So that's you're doing pretty well, in fact. Well, have you had the opportunity to do any interim analysis or not yet? We're not going to be doing any interim analysis, but we are obviously sharing on the, the data uh, is being shared with the data monitoring committee who are looking at safety and so on. And there have been no safety concerns raised so far, um, which is good news. Uh, uh, I mean, I think we are. The reality is we're recruiting slower than we would like to. Um, you know, the study, we may need to um, go for an extension. Um, so we're going to be in discussion with the NIHR at the end of July about that. Um, but yes, 600 patients is a, you know, um, we're very happy to have got that far. Um, and that's down to the efforts of all the, um, you know, fantastic uh, research teams in the various UK units that are recruiting into the study for us. So it's really down to them. The separation between between the groups is obviously important, isn't it? And in your pilot studies, you did show separation. We didn't have a pilot. We had a kind of, it was an internal pilot, if you like. So we basically, what we had was a six month point where we had to share with the NHR our recruitment data separation um, and so on. 
Um, and yes, at that point, um, we had uh, not quite the separation we wanted to see um, in terms of um, both uh, um, blood pressure and length of treatment. Um, we are you know, separation is an issue, um, and we are keeping close a close eye on it, um, and we're in discussion with you know the, the study teams individually um, if we identify issues. But it is it is difficult. Um, because you know it's 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 uh, you know there are all the issues that you can imagine with um, you know uh, people worrying about blood pressure falling and patients being unstable or perhaps the monitoring is difficult and so on. So it is an issue for sure, and we we, we do have to keep a very close eye on it. Um, there's also potentially a Hawthorne effect where because everyone's talking about do we need high blood pressures that the standard arm is reducing as well yes that's absolutely could be a problem as well so you know we need to as I say we need to we need to keep close a close eye on that um and and keep and, and and keep tabs on it but yes i think that um you know perhaps practice has changed from when we did our survey which was a few years ago now um and people are um, you know, looking at the results of some of the adult studies and saying, well, you know, why don't we aim for lower number two? So that's yeah. that's a worry. Well, I'm old enough to be in a, in the ICU. We started off, when we first started off in the 80s, we always drove the pressure as high as we possibly could uh, because that was a norm, normal practice. Uh, and it's quite nice to see that, you know, there is now science being applied 30 years down the road because I think we, never, we didn't know anything at all. We just used our clinical judgment to try and push pressures as high as possible to make sure that the renal output is okay, etc. But I think this was a trial I, I've been waiting for it to sort of uh, happen, so I'm really very pleased. It's been a long time wait coming, I think. Oh, oh, oh good. I believe it gives us some useful um, answer at the end, um, but thank you. And um, there's almost certainly a J-curve here for outcomes and there. So clearly very low blood pressures are bad for you um clearly these drugs are bad uh and we all know that drugs are bad so giving too much of the drugs will cause harm as well and somewhere somewhere in the middle is this is this sweet spot isn't it yes and i think you know with that that, that the, the classic u-shaped curve of survival against a, a variable if you like yeah. uh, we know has been around for a long time, and I mean, Frank Shan used that to help develop the PIM score back in the late nineties. So I think um, uh, you know, and you can look at that in terms of um, oxygenation as observational data, or and blood pressure. And we've demonstrated that with some of our pilot data um, that there's a kind of sweet spot. Um, but as you say, that sweet spot is you know something you've identified with observational data, and ideally, it'd be you know useful to um, identify the sweet spot in a kind of prospective trial, which is what we're trying to do, I guess. Um, but yes, absolutely. There's that U-shaped curve, which I think, um, you know, makes us wonder, you know, we, we know that too high is not good for you, whether that's the result of the high blood pressure or the interventions, we don't know. And too low also, as you say, is, is not good for you because of uh, hypoperfusion. But somewhere in the middle is where we probably need to be. So I'm a big fan of um, per protocol analyses because they tell me, what happens if I do it rather than what happens if I ask for it, which are subtly di different questions. But just thinking about your study, it'd be hard to do a per protocol analysis because blood pressure is going to wander up and down, isn't it? It's not as if it's a 
single point you give it or you don't, it's um it'll be blood pressure over three, four, five days. So would you look at mean blood pressure over that time or or within the range or time within the range or is there some way of doing a per protocol analysis to help us if the groups aren't separated enough then is that a possibility yeah i mean i think we'd have to look at the end of the study and work out what the best way to look at the data in that way would be i mean obviously it's you know really what we you know it's been designed as an intention to treat sort of thing so that's the way we have to look at the data um but we are collecting data on deviations so you know perhaps it may be possible to um you know do some kind of as you say, another analysis, um, maybe excluding the patients that have had deviations in some way. But I, I don't know what would be practical or statistically valid. Um, we obviously have to discuss that with the methodologists at the end. My preference is for both, yeah, because they both tell me important outcomes, but in different ways. Um, so, 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 uh, so that's an example where more is more, in my view. Before we finish, just a quick word about the cost-effectiveness aspect of the study. Or could you tell us a little bit more about that? Yes. Yeah, so this is a uh, section of the analysis that will be uh, that's been designed by um, the London School of Hygiene, and essentially they're going to be looking at um, quality-adjusted life years at ninety days um, in what's called incremental net monetary benefit. Um, we're also going to be looking at incremental costs um, at 30 days. Um, and we're going to be, although this isn't cost effectiveness, we'll be looking at healthcare related quality of life, which will basically be by a kind of um, uh, a parent uh, reported questionnaire. So there's a, a sort of number of uh, outcome measures that are um, beyond the purely PICU clinical outcome measures, if you like. Um, we're also going to be looking at functional status um, between PICU admission and discharge as much as we can using paediatric overall performance category and paediatric cerebral performance category. But that may be somewhat difficult to do um, during the acute admission. Um, thank you, David. That's a really, really important trial and one which um, everyone's desperate to know the answer from, even though it's still going on. <laughs> Um, when will when will you be able to tell us as a pickpod exclusive what results are? I wish I could answer that question, Patrick. Um, obviously, it depends on recruitment completely. Um, but I mean, I, I suspect it won't be for at least another year or two. Okay, thank you for your hard work. And as I say, you know, this is such an important issue, and all the numbers which we which we pick out of the hats when the when the nurse at the bedside says what target you want, and I just basically look at the screen and think the patient's just about okay or not okay and want a bit more and that's as scientific as it gets so it'd be fantastic to have something better to base it on so thank you thank you very much for inviting me on and let's hope the 1900 patients get uh, get randomized soon and thank you very much for the invitation to come and speak on pick thank you very kind thank you